everybody. This is the Enlighten Me podcast that you're listening to, and I'm your host, Mackenzie. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm super excited to share what I have with you. But first, I want to say I hope you're enjoying your time at home right now. I know this is scary times in the entire world, and my heart is grieving with those who've lost people that they love because of this disease. My heart's with those who are sick and currently battling it. It is a sad and crazy time in our world, but I hope that you're still able to take advantage of this time where we are forced to slow down. Take advantage of being with your family and doing things that matter. I read something really good on Instagram just the other day where they were talking about how it's fun for a little while to get the time of canceled plans to just binge watch Netflix and eat junk food, get takeout all that good stuff, but that gets old after a little while. And so if you can relate to that, I hope you will take this time to do something meaningful while you stay safe and stay home. One thing that you can do is listen to podcasts, which if you're listening to this, you have already picked up on that, but that is some free entertainment right there, supporting your podcasters. Now is also a great time to watch some of the documentaries and read books that I've told you guys about in the past. Make sure you're following along with me online on my Instagram and Facebook accounts. I'm going to try to be posting helpful tips on there through this time. I also saw something really good the other day that said, it's obviously important to keep up with the news and know what's going on in the world, but I read that you should really only be checking the news twice a day, no more than that, for your own mental health. It's really easy to get bogged down and feel depressed after you watch that stuff. So try not to check it more than twice a day or else you're just going to be feeling down. So if you're one of those people who has the news on all day long, turn it off, only check it twice a day, and then try listening to some encouraging things outside of that time. So for the month of March, I have a little bit of a different show for you. For this episode, I interviewed a new friend named Rachel George. Rachel is a coffee shop owner, an author, wife to Sam, and a biological and adoptive mama. We actually met through our mutual friend Emily, who I interviewed back on episode 18 all about Noonday Collection, so if you haven't checked that out, make sure you go do so. If you're in need of some retail therapy right now, Noonday is a great place to look. So like I said, Rachel does a lot right now. Rachel and her husband Sam have three babies that are in heaven and two here on earth, which is what we're talking about here today. Rachel started blogging about their journey with grief, and now she is a published author. So we actually recorded this conversation back in the fall, and since then a lot has changed, which you're just going to have to listen to find out what I'm talking about. But like I said, this is a little different than my normal episodes. I didn't have a ton of questions prepared for Rachel, but instead I just wanted to let her tell her story. Like I said, she's an author, she's a writer, so she's great at storytelling, and I just wanted to hear her perspective of all that happened. So I do ask some questions along the way, just for a better understanding of things, but really I just kind of let her share what happened in this episode. You're going to be really drawn in and you're going to love listening to her. You might find yourself tearing up at times. You'll also find yourself smiling and being encouraged, I promise. Rachel gives some good tips for dealing with grief, whether it's alone or with a spouse or as a couple, and also with helping others through grief. So we're all going to encounter grief in our lives, whether it's us personally or through our loved ones. And I think this conversation is really raw and honest about just how we can handle grief in a healthy way. As you're listening, I'd love it if you would go and leave a rating and a review over on the iTunes app. Even if you don't listen through iTunes, I know there's a lot of other platforms out there that you might be listening to. 
I will take a rating or review wherever you want to give it, but it is especially helpful if you can leave me a rating and review on the podcast app through iTunes, just because that allows more people to find the show, and that's what I want. I want more people to hear this good content and stories like Rachel's. I won't take up too much more of your time, but I want to let you hear Rachel's story now, but I encourage you to make sure you listen all the way through to the very end of the episode so that you can hear some special announcements and more about what is going on in Rachel's life. So make sure you listen all the way through, and here is my conversation with Rachel George. Okay. Hey, Rachel. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to chat with you today. Can you just start with introducing yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm Rachel George. I live in Danville, Illinois, Central Illinois. Married to Sam, my husband, and we have um, right now we have a daughter named Corey who is two that we're raising, and um, we have three other babies in heaven too. Right now, I'm actually staying home to spend time with Corey, but I was a kindergarten teacher for many years and have a background in education. Have done in-home work with kiddos with special needs as well and um yeah right now mostly mostly playing the role of mom Mm -hmm. and then my husband and I own two coffee shops and a coffee roastery so that's a big part of our lives too and I do some different things to help out with that Uh so yeah very cool well I I don't know I'm I think I told you how I got connected with you which is through a mutual friend of ours Emily Mm -hmm. who was actually interviewed on the podcast. We talked all about Noonday Collection. But also, it's funny because I didn't, she didn't tell me really who you are. She just said, oh, she has a blog. You should check it out. She would be great to interview on the podcast. And as I started reading about it, I was like, I know who this girl is because Emily and especially her husband, Daniel, are like your biggest advocates as far as mad goat (laughs) coffee goes like they can't talk enough about it so I was like I've heard plenty about you (laughs) yeah yeah Daniel pretty much comes it seems like almost every day he's there working meeting people and working doing work from there like a second office to him Uh so or second home yeah so it's awesome yeah we love having um I mean I love I love good coffee but the community aspect is the thing that I care the most about and it's just been really cool to see how our town it, we've been open for five years now uh-huh we just opened our second second location this year and both in both in our town okay and um yeah the town has responded so well and just so cool to see how it just facilitates community and it's wonderful to see all of our staff and I don't know just a really positive environment so yeah for sure cool. well so I did want to ask, you teach part-time on top of everything, right? I just stopped um, doing developmental therapy okay. part-time. I'm kind of pausing. Okay. Um, right now, I'm working on a big writing project. I'm working on a book. So I felt like I needed to focus on right. that, kind of hone in and focus on, on that. Yeah. Plus the coffee shop, I help out with that. So yeah, yeah, trying to limit all the like little things that kind of fill up all my time. So yeah. Now, does your husband also work outside of the coffee shop, or um, he did up until um, about a year and a half ago? Yeah, he he was okay. able to leave his his full time job a year and a half ago and, and do this full time. So he manages both shops, oversees everything. So, okay. Yeah. 
So how did you guys decide that you were going to open a coffee shop? Like, was that always a dream of yours or Um, how did that happen? You know, it's funny. I probably thought it was like a dream like a long time ago. Like, I don't know, probably when I watch Friends or something. Yeah. (laughs) It just seems like a a quaint idea. Uh But no, I never really, you know, wanted to own a business or anything. But my husband comes from a very entrepreneurial family and he always wanted to have some sort of business and he would come up with these ideas and and most of them were just you know random <laughs> ideas that probably would have worked out but weren't enough yeah. for me to be like yeah let's do this let's do this uh-huh. but um yeah the main thing came we both went to the university of illinois so it's about half an hour from where we live okay me too yeah oh, okay I'm cool <laughs> I, thought so. I thought so we didn't think we were gonna end up living in this area um but once we were here for about four years, we kind of explored some other options, including going overseas and doing doing business as missions overseas. And um, so we took a trip and really found out a lot about that. And then basically, we just decided that that didn't seem, even though we felt really willing to go, it just didn't seem like what it was what we were supposed to do at the time. And so then we're like, okay, mm-hmm. well, we're staying here. We have a house here. We have a church we love, a community we love, like, what do we want here? <laughs> what, what would we do if we could change anything, you know, make something better? And a coffee shop just was the thing that stuck out to us as a place for, like, community, as a place for people to study, as a place for people to gather together. And, yeah, we were able to kind of work hard and remortgage our home and pull stuff together to open up a small shop to start and partner with our Sam's sister and her husband to do that and they had some experience um, doing that so yeah pretty much you know mm-hmm. it was really community based and yeah it's been cool to see how that has still been a huge part of it each part of what we care about yeah right that's really cool I have like a dream I don't know that it would ever I would ever actually make the effort to put it into motion that I would love to someday own a coffee shop that's also mm-hmm. like a bookstore like you can come and like read the books and then like buy them if you yeah. want or check them out like borrow them something super like cool I would love yeah. I just think that sounds so yeah. fun and cozy yeah. so really cool okay so that's just one part of mm-hmm. your story and really what we want to talk about today is your story well, you're in your husband's story mm-hmm. with having children, and you mentioned it at the beginning, but you guys have had a very long and, mm-hmm. I mean, challenging journey. And so you're a writer and a storyteller, so I just want to let you kind of tell your story and start wherever you want. Um, you know, when, I guess mm-hmm. start with your marriage story, I guess. When did you guys get married? You know, how how long into marriage did you wait to start having kids? All that good stuff. Yeah, sure. We met in college, and Sam actually graduated two years ahead of me, and um, so we were pretty much long distance the whole time we were dating, but we got married right after I graduated. So Uh we've been married 10 years now. We just celebrated 10 years, so super super exciting. And I would say, really, marriage the first few years came pretty easily to us. We... Uh We are really, really good friends, and I feel like we didn't have, like, the really tumultuous time in those early years, mm-hmm. so we decided to wait a while before we started having a, fa- a family, having kids, and I was teaching full-time. We wanted to pay off student debt, and 
In the meantime, we bought an old house and got really involved in our church and just did a lot of serving together, did some traveling. I feel like we really, we knew things would change a lot once we had kids. And so we just kind of wanted to appreciate and enjoy those years. And we really did. I mean, even though we were, we were both like mm-hmm. so excited, like we can't wait, we can't wait, but we should, we want to wait, you know, like just very rational about mm-hmm. it all. So um, finally we hit close to the five-year mark or maybe it was about four years and then we're like, okay, at five years then we would have yeah. a baby. So everyone we knew had either gotten pregnant accidentally or like the first month. So, <laughs> so yeah, we decided to start trying and you know, I had like read everything, was eating all the right things, everything to like just make everything optimal. Yeah. And it took almost a year um, for us to get pregnant with our first baby. Mm-hmm. And um, we were just so excited by the time that came around because, you know, we were worried and we just felt like that, that was kind of a long time. And yeah. And then at the time, my both of my sisters who are older than me were also expecting. Oh, wow. And my sister-in-law was expecting and my best friend was oh expecting. So it was a really, wow. um, yeah, it was a really crazy time. And I just remember feeling really excited because a couple of them already had kids, but it was like going to be exciting to have you know some cousins and friends together. And, yeah. And then actually within maybe a month of me finding out I was pregnant, and just things were not seeming right, so we went into the doctor, and it took several appointments, but they finally confirmed that um, I had miscarriage, so we lost that baby, okay. and that was a really, really hard time. I feel like we were actually that was the year we mm-hmm. opened the coffee shop, so we were out, we were in the middle of everything construction-wise, and just so busy, and I don't feel like we had the time to give one another emotional support and yeah it was really really hard really dark and I hadn't really ever experienced Mm -hmm. loss before in my life my husband had lost his Mm -hmm. father when he was in high school okay so he he had experienced a big loss yeah and for me I think this was the first time that something had really gone wrong wrong um I had you know hiccups in my life hard hard things here and there sure sure but nothing that yeah difficult. yeah nothing that difficult. Yeah. And I just felt really betrayed um, by God and just felt it was it was a definitely a crisis of faith for me and very lonely. Even yeah. though I knew other people who had, had miscarriages, it just felt very private, very lonely, and somehow shameful. Like because it had been yeah. so early, I didn't really talk to too many people about it and stuff. Yeah. So can I ask, were you like at all expecting that? And I don't. I don't mean that like you were expecting the worst, but I don't know. So many people wait, you know, past a certain week mark or past the first trimester Mm -hmm. before they feel like it's like safe to share it with anybody or anything like that. Yeah. Were you you expecting that something could go wrong or did you feel like pretty I think I thought, I I think I was pretty aware of miscarriage risks and just had known a lot of people who had had even reoccurring miscarriages. So Mm -hmm. I think I knew... And I was pretty, you know, nervous to share before a certain mark. But I think there was also this side of me that was like, well, we already had to wait a whole year. So surely, you know, surely things will mm-hmm. be fine because that was the hard thing, right? The hard thing was, you know, waiting one year to get pregnant or something. So um, you, you get these little thoughts mm-hmm. in your mind, like we already had our, like our hard time or whatever. So, 
and in our story, of course, that has just mm-hmm. you know continued and continued where it's like, well, surely this time, surely this time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a- after that miscarriage, you know, everyone of the doctors were like, this is very normal. Probably something was wrong. You know, and I felt like I had some some pretty sympathetic care providers and and friends and family, and no one was really dismissive. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just hard for me to kind of face some of that pain. Yeah. But after a few months, Sam and I were able to take some time to process and talk through it, and I felt like I was able to kind of hit a point where I was able to face some of my darkness and brokenness and allow myself to feel the things I was feeling and allow God to comfort me. That was something that for me was really important and I'd kind of been pushing off and putting a distance. So I think I processed a lot and I learned a ton in that about six month period of processing through and thinking through the loss of that baby and and even just thinking, you know, even though I never, we never even saw that baby's heartbeat, just that there was there was an attachment, that there was value, there wasn't that it wasn't a foolish thing for mm-hmm. me to care that I had had a loss. Yeah. That it was even though other people didn't know the baby, to me it was a you know, a really huge loss and it hurt. Yeah. So I think I processed a lot. So then about six months later we got pregnant with our son, Clive. Yes. And but how were you feeling when you first found out you were pregnant? Were you like terrified? Super or? excited. Okay, excited. No, super excited. Okay. Yeah. I mean we were scared, but yeah, I think my husband and I are both pretty hopeful people and mm-hmm. relatively resilient people. I mean, not that we mm-hmm. can bounce back from everything. We definitely have to take a lot of time to process and think. But yeah, we were just, we knew that we had love and we wanted to have a child. And we just felt like this was the next next right thing, the next right step for us um, to try again. So, mm-hmm. and we knew a ton of people who had had miscarriages and who had gone on to have, you know, a healthy child. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, we got pregnant. I was still working. We found out the gender of the baby. I, about 20 mm-hmm. weeks. Everything, everything seemed normal. great. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Everything was great. We bought a little outfit for him. Actually, we so we went to Target before our appointment to find out um, the gender, the ultrasound, mm-hmm. and bought two outfits because we knew we, uh-huh. we wouldn't have time to go to Target afterwards. So we bought a little dress and a little suit. It was like, oh. I think it was around before Easter time. So it was little Easter outfits. Uh-oh. Those outfits are really special to me. And... We took a little picture that evening. We announced that he was a boy and mm-hmm. took a little picture of the suit and the ultrasound and shared it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone was super excited. And it was just a really a wonderful time being, yeah. being pregnant. I enjoyed my pregnancy a lot with him. And um, I was teaching full time. So I was around all these kindergartners and I was pretty tired, but, but still, yeah, really enjoyed it. So about... Uh, and my 30-week appointment, so this would be 10 weeks after that, I went in, everything completely normal, and then I went into this appointment, and they detected an arrhythmia and a, an a SVT, a rapid heart rate, on the babies. I, I didn't really understand, you know, the seriousness of that, and it actually yeah. can be pretty, yeah. there's a lot of degrees of different arrhythmias and stuff, and sometimes it isn't very serious, but... Sure. But it was pretty it was pretty fast, the heart rate. And so I remember I had just drinking my glucose drink and I was supposed to go to the lab after my appointment for the draw and 
my doctor was like, you know, I'm going to have you actually go to the hospital right now. I think you need to have this checked out because I was just at the mm. doctor's office. And she, you know, she said, I think that they need to see you there at the uh-huh. hospital. Um, you'll probably be admitted and they'll run some tests and just check and see because I'm, I'm concerned about okay. this, his heart rate and, and the change. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember asking her like, oh, but don't I need to stay here for my blood draw? Like I just drank that glucose drink. You know, yeah. she was she was just like, no, you need to go right now. <laughs> you need to go to the hospital. Can you drive yeah. yourself? I was alone for that appointment. And okay. um, she said, no, you need, to, you need to go right now. And I just remember thinking like, oh, I guess maybe this is a little serious because, you know, yeah. of course the thing I'm worried about is getting my blood drawn. Yeah. <laughs> She's worried about the health of the baby. Right. So I, I head over there. I called Sam and he met me at the hospital and... Again, I don't even think we, he didn't even like go home and pack a bag or anything like, oh, whatever. We're probably just going to check in and yeah. check things out. and Yeah, it'll be fine. be fine. Yeah. And we actually didn't go home for, for two months from oh my that gosh. appointment. Yeah. So Clive, um, his heart rate was um, pretty significantly high and there wasn't anything structurally wrong that they could tell, but... Um, he was only 30 weeks, so they wanted to keep him in as long as possible. So they tried to treat me, give me heart medicine. Mm-hmm. It would go through and, and treat him, and that, that didn't end up working. Okay. So after about a, a week, I, I stayed in the hospital. Mm-hmm. After about a week, they transferred me over to a children's hospital, and I stayed there for about another week in the maternity wing next to the children's hospital. And then, then Clive was born. They decided... It was time. What were you thinking during those, like, two weeks? Like, were you still thinking, like, I don't know, like, lots of babies are born early. Like, this is going to be okay. Yeah. Or did they yeah. make it seem like it was really serious? Or what you was know, going through your head? Yeah. Um, it's so hard to, to, to remember back. But I think I yeah. just thought it was pretty, like, I think I just felt pretty trusting and felt pretty yeah. good about things. I think part of it helped is I felt I felt okay. Like I physically sure. was not in, um, like there's some mothers who, you know, they're experiencing a lot of health problems and I felt okay. Mm-hmm. We, we had the yeah. monitors on 24 seven and I just remember listening to his heart beat and just kind of learning the, the little skips and beats that his heart had. And it was not comfortable being in the hospital. It was not like enjoyable, but Sam was mm-hmm. with me. For most of the time, I think he was able to work remotely. I can't even really remember what he did. But, yeah, I think it just felt like, okay, this is – I was pretty calm about it. And I remember one one day a nurse had trouble finding a reading, and I knew things were fine just personally. I knew things were fine. But all of a sudden, you know, she called in the team, and mm-hmm. they were going to, like, take me directly to the OR and – and have him born because she thought that there was either no heart rate or the heart rate had stopped or something. But it turned out that the machine, just because he had an arrhythmia, it was really uh-huh. hard to pick up his heart rate accurately. Gotcha. And yeah. the machine couldn't read it because it was so um, skippy that it would basically half the heart rate. So it was reading it wrong. Gotcha. And I knew that, but the new nurse didn't know that. So they're like wheeling me out of the room uh-huh. and I'm like, no, no, no. Do another ultrasound, please. Just check it again. And they did. And, uh, but I think I had a lot of, I guess, a lot of peace and a lot of certainty. And I felt like I knew him really well. I felt like really bonded to him. And yeah. so he was born at 32 weeks. They, they had a C-section. And 
Okay. Um, his heart was, his body was taking on fluid because his heart wasn't pumping correctly. So when he was born, he was kind of swollen. I thought he okay. looked adorable because I didn't really know anything different. Yeah. But he, within the first week, lost about, I think it was about a liter of fluid. So he really, oh, wow. really slimmed down. Uh-huh. So how much did he weigh? Um, I think it was 414. I'm horrible at okay. numbers <laughs> remembering. That's but okay. Just, I just think like that's like not a bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not like a, I mean, still tiny. Right, but. right. And but a lot of that was water weight. I think he went down to close to four pounds sure. pretty soon. Aww. So tiny yeah. little guy, so sweet, and took them a few days to stabilize him. And with the heart condition that he had, it, it um, was not one that usually required surgery. It was one that usually was able to be treated with medication. So this was like a thing that they they were like, oh yeah, this happens. Mm-hmm. Like we know how to mm-hmm. deal with it. It wasn't like, yeah. Oh my gosh, what are we yeah. gonna do? Yeah, um, very treatable, and they tried out different medications. At first, they thought maybe it would even, um, his heart, the rhythm would convert as soon as he was born, because that can happen, too, as soon as they are born. Sometimes their heart rhythm will change as they start breathing on their own and are disconnected from the placenta, but that didn't happen for him, and they tried lots of different medications. There's a whole team um, of specialists, obviously, working with him, and um, they were able to work on lots of different things he was doing really well for several weeks we got to just spend time with him spend time holding him feeding him with a bottle just worked on so many different things and it took a long time to get there we actually weren't able to hold him for about five days oh my gosh I bet that was stabilized it was so hard it was so hard um but we just stood next to him and held his Uh little hand and you know just I felt like we had really really beautiful, wonderful time with him in the hospital, mm-hmm. um, especially once we got to do some of the kind of normal things like dress him. Yeah, yeah, and he was making progress. Yeah, yeah, so he was making tons of progress. They still couldn't quite figure out the heart rhythm. It was still really high. His heart was still high. So we weren't sure, like, he wasn't big enough. There is a surgery they could do, but he wasn't big enough for the surgery yet because they go through your veins to do it. Okay. It's not an open heart surgery. Okay. So. They're like, okay, well, he might have to go home on, you know, medication and monitors and mm-hmm. wait till he's big enough to do the surgery. But they mentioned at one point that we were kind of in uncharted territory. And that is where we were when one day we were – actually, it was the day my husband was going back, going to go back to work. So things were going really well. It was going to be his okay. first day back in, you know, several weeks. Were you living – like, were you at home and coming to the hospital every day? Or? No. Um, so we were actually about two hours away from home oh, okay. at the children's hospital. Okay. Yeah. So you just stayed so, there. Yeah, we just stayed there. Okay, um, wow. Yeah. So there was, like, a, a family house that um, we, yeah, okay. we stayed at and through the hospital. And mm-hmm. mostly one of us would stay in his room every night, which was so nice. He had, he had a bed, uh, couch in the room that we could stay and be with him but so it was actually yeah a night that he was he had been doing so well so Sam was gonna go back to work and he was on his way and we got a phone call that morning that his heart rate had just pretty much crashed and um, they told us to come in so Mm -hmm. basically the medicine had been a little bit too strong I don't know they they can't really explain what had happened but at some point the, the medicine that he had had to to slow down his heart had really kicked in and it slowed it down way too much 
So Clive was taken into emergency surgery that day, and were you were you at the hospital or were you with Sam? We weren't there at the time, but okay. we got there pretty quickly. Okay. So, so yeah, he was whisked away. It was really hard to, yeah. to kind of go through that day and not know we were just in waiting rooms and right. um, couldn't be with him. And, and then he spent, after that, the surgery, he, he survived the surgery, but it actually still did not correct his heart problem. Um, and he was hooked up to basically an ECMO machine, which is a life support machine. It's a machine that they use like post any heart surgery. Okay. kind of does the the heart and lung it's a heart and lung machine so he was hooked up to that machine and we didn't know how how much damage there was we didn't really know we just had to kind of wait and see so we had about 10 days with him from that point on and slowly over that time his body was shutting down he was kind of making it clear to us that um that he wouldn't survive so mm-hmm. we had a lot of a lot of pain in that time, but somehow a lot of peace too. I think you just see yeah. seeing his suffering, we knew that, you know, at some point it just it just occurred to us that like really the only way for him to not be in pain is for him not to be here anymore. And especially that last day, that's just kinda how we felt like for there to be a sign of, you know, complete healing right away or miraculous healing or mm-hmm. for a clear sign that it was time for him to go. So we said goodbye and held him and you know just rocked him and it, he made it really clear to us that it was time for us to, to pull off support so wow yeah so we said goodbye to him he was um just five weeks old 39 days old mm-hmm. and just the most precious little boy <laughs> he's literally the cutest thing <laughs> like the pictures that i've seen yeah so, so cute sweet. so cute so and cute. and so joyous um through everything i just felt like he was always the one kind of giving us these little reassuring smiles and just staring at us very very connected very um in tune yeah. with us and what a gift what a like a miraculous gift to to even see his eyes until the end. I know a lot of people don't yeah. know that when, when their loved ones are on life support. Sure. So, yeah. I guess one thing I'm wondering, and I don't know, if, this isn't even really a question, but it just if anybody's ever asked you about this, I feel like people listening might be wondering, like, oh my gosh, I just can't imagine, like, having that peace and, like, coming to that conclusion that to, to say goodbye, essentially, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and it's not just with your child, but like anybody who's ever been in that position where, you know, someone was on something that was supporting their life, but it, was, it wasn't their own body doing it. Like, how, how do you yeah. decide that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think for us, it was just at the point where we could tell that his pain was increasing. And mm-hmm. yeah, there were just some signs outwardly in his body that, we're just really clear that when all the doctors had confirmed, you know, that he wouldn't make it. And yeah, at that point, it just felt like that was the merciful thing. I, I just remember praying mm-hmm. and asking God for mercy. That was kind of what mm-hmm. I wrote in my journal that day. Just God have mercy. And I feel like we, the merciful mm-hmm. thing was that we had a clear sign and that, yeah, it felt like an act of mercy by that point. And yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll share about our daughter as well and, and her death, but I think that was a big difference in in their deaths. I think with Clive and with processing the loss of him, 
there was a little bit of peace because it felt like his body was so broken and so hurt and mm-hmm. I have hope for healing for him in heaven mm-hmm. and I felt like I had more peace because it felt like releasing someone into some you know into freedom from the their earthly pain whereas with our daughter it felt kind of the opposite where it's just like what how did the, you know how it happened really suddenly so yeah so yeah I think we just yeah somehow we had peace in, in the midst of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Rachel, that must have been so hard. I just can't even imagine. But did you ever feel, like, angry or upset with the doctors? I, that was just one thing I wondered while you were telling the story, just because it's, like, this medicine that was supposed to help him right. ended up hurting right. him, kind of, in the end. And not that that was the only thing, mm-hmm. probably, that was wrong, but... Did you ever feel like, okay, you didn't do your job, like, or anything like that, or, um, I don't know? Actually, no. I, we, we had one, one specific doctor that mo- mostly worked with us, and he was a, um, he was actually the head of cardiology there, and his specialty was electrocardiology, which the heart has electrical co- connections, and Clive's problem, mm-hmm. none of his problems were structural. They were all electrical problems in his heart. And I didn't know any of that before, <laughs> before, um, yeah. before I had him. But um, so he was just an ex. He's an expert in his field, and actually, it was really, um, really cool connecting with him. And I just, I could tell he cared so much for us and for our family. And you know, he shared with us that he had been praying for us, and he shared. I felt like he connected with us probably maybe even more than a doctor should because I know that they have to be really careful of how much they care uh-huh. because it hurts to care. I mean, yeah. you can't care. You can't care a hundred percent for or yeah. 200% for every patient because you know, your heart would just break. If oh, you yeah. were um, letting yourself emotionally get engaged with a family. But I think he did. He allowed himself to, to care for us and just shared some different times of trying to make decisions and we knew he was up at night just thinking about us and trying mm-hmm. to find just the best solution and and I think we I, we just know that Clive was a, an exceptional case just a really really challenging one in a million kind of there wasn't really any other way we felt a lot of confidence in that and we felt like we had just really wonderful care and I, that is reassuring to me because I know not everyone gets that. Not everyone yeah. can have that kind of confidence in yeah. their care providers. And I won't say that everyone was perfect. There was definitely some nurses I felt were kind mm-hmm. of gruff or weren't very kind to us. And, you know, we went through a lot of different staff in our time there because we were at two different hospitals and different wings within different hospitals. And yeah. so that was hard, just kind of getting to know, getting to know different right. people in our eight weeks which felt like, I mean, it was a lifetime. It was Clive's lifetime. But yeah, I still, I I feel very connected Mm -hmm. to these doctors that care for him. And I love them almost like their family, you know, in a way that they are not connected to me. I know that that's not reciprocated, but um, they were there for these intimate, intimate times of our lives. And they will always feel like so special and so important to our family. Yeah. Yeah, that must have really helped with that feeling of peace that you were talking about yeah. with the decision process, just knowing that mm-hmm. you had doctors that literally gave it their all. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. Okay, so you're, you know, 
Sam's about to go back to work. You're thinking like we're on the up and up. We're uh, almost back to normal life. And then you're forced to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. So then what? Like, I mean, what did you do after that? That day we said goodbye to Clive. We had to leave him. We had to leave his body in the hospital. The funeral home comes and picks up the body. I didn't know that. I didn't know, you know. But walking away from him was really hard, <laughs> mm-hmm. really hard. And our pastor mm-hmm. and our parents were there with us. And so we spent some time with them. We had lunch with them afterwards. But I just, I remember feeling some sort of just spiritual peace. And I don't know, I can't really explain it, but I think that there was a level of relief yeah. of of knowing he was okay, even though I didn't think mm-hmm. I was okay. And mm-hmm. we had some friends who had lost uh, their five-year-old son, actually in the same hospital, in the um, same room as us, a few oh years before. So we watched them walk through some stuff, um, all of that, and we felt like we learned a ton from them. And we just felt a ton of support. And in the months that followed, you know, we just, we were able to remember and celebrate Clive and because we had been in the hospital, so many people knew our story and just knew him through us and just, we were able to share pictures and share his story. And I just remember feeling really still very proud of him and being his mom and, you know, took a lot of, I took a lot of time to, to kind of remember him and process. And I was off work for a couple months because it was summertime. Mm. And then I headed back to work and Sam had to go back to work pretty much as soon as we, as soon as we had the funeral. So it was hard, probably about three months out is when stuff really started to sink in and, you know, support starts to dwindle at about three months. And, um, it was, it was super hard to kind of process through things and face some of the darkness of his absence. We didn't have any children at home. So it just kind of felt this, there was just a, a void, a huge void. So we knew right away that we wanted to try to get pregnant again. And again, we knew it wasn't going to be Clive. It wasn't, it was going to be totally different, but we still like felt that desire yeah. to raise a child even more so because, you know, we had had this wonderful experience in some of the weeks and the moments that we had with him. We knew how it felt to be parents Yeah, and it felt wonderful. So um, we actually, we got pregnant again. I think we had waited probably about six or six or nine months because I'd had a C-section. So they, they asked us to wait for a while. So okay, got pregnant again and then had our little Winnie. Did it happen quickly that time? Um, yeah, I think so. I think we got pregnant within a couple months. Okay. Of trying, yeah. And when you, I, I want to ask the same question mm-hmm. that I did before, like when you found out you were pregnant, what were your feelings that time? Like, was it still like excited? Like, okay. You know, surely nothing's going to go wrong yeah. this time. Or were you yeah. nervous? I'm or? sure. Um, it's hard to remember, but I'm sure I was nervous. But at the same time, I think I knew how much I valued and loved being pregnant and how much Clive mattered to me even, you know, mm-hmm. from the very, very beginning. So yeah, I was pretty aware of wanting to, like, appreciate the baby for however long I got to have the baby. Yeah. But we did decide to, to make a couple of changes. And one was that once I found out I was pregnant, it was about the end of a semester back to school. So it was around Christmas break. So I decided to, it had actually been really hard for me to teach. So I decided not to return for the next, for the spring semester. Because of your 
pregnancy or because of your mostly because of grief it was just really it was too draining yeah and and I think that there was you know some fears too of with anxiety and with even being around just tons of sickness and stuff Mm -hmm. just felt like it would be the best thing for for me to take some time off teaching so I spent the most majority of my pregnancy with Winnie home with her I mean just doing I did a little bit part-time work but mostly um just got to spend a lot of time bonding with her and mm-hmm. I don't know I don't even know what I what I spent my time I remember I did a lot of gardening <laughs> and yeah. lots of reading and just a lot of intentional time and that was such a blessing mm-hmm. and then I helped out with some stuff with our business and different things like yeah. that um I started writing my book actually during my pregnancy with Winnie oh okay not knowing that I would have a ton more to add to that book. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, so same thing with Winnie's pregnancy. Everything went great. We named her as soon as we found out she was a girl. Clive is named after C.S. Lewis, and Winnie is named after Aww. our grandma, Winona. Oh. Super special to have people to name our babies after. Mm-hmm. And and you had the little dress, right? Yes, and I had the little dress for her. Uh-huh. So what's, what's really hard and special somehow about those little outfits is, is that's actually what each of them was was buried in oh yeah and you know we never would have imagined picking you know a couple little outfits out at target that that was the purpose and obviously that's so sure. hard to think back on but mm-hmm. at the same time there's something really special about you know that we picked that for them and yeah yeah it's a it's a bitter bittersweet memory so yeah, at about 30 weeks pregnant, which is the same point where there was a problem that came up with Clive, there was a problem that came up with Winnie, completely different, completely unrelated. They were kind of checking everything mm-hmm. really closely with her, and um, she had had a little bit of fluid on her brain, and they said it could just resolve something that they sometimes see, or could turn into something that was maybe linked to like a developmental delay or something. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of followed the pregnancy closely. She was measuring pretty small I ended up having her at 38 weeks okay and which is like pretty good yeah that's full, considered a full term mm-hmm. but she was small she was under five pounds oh, just and girl. just a little peanut and yeah. <laughs> um so <laughs> tiny it was it her birth was really wonderful and did you get to have her yeah I got you to didn't have, have to do a section no I didn't have to have a c-section with her and that was just really um, it, it, with a V back, so I didn't have a C-section, and it was really special. Um, I think part of it was just you know being uh-huh. able to kind of recover quickly and um, yeah, be able to sure. you know be more with yeah. her um, and a little less you know uh-huh. concerned with myself and taking care of myself after surgery. So that had been a hard thing with Clive, just that I I had a lot of recovery to do while you know we were trying to be with him all the time. So yeah, and. Even, um, we were not really prepared for a NICU stay. I think we were, maybe were in denial, even though there were, you know, a few things that had pointed to, you know, possibility of that. But so, for the um, most part, they didn't think like, like they hadn't said like, oh, what happened with Clive is likely to happen with Winnie, no, right? No, by there no means. Like yeah, it was actually nothing wrong with her heart that they, that they had found. And okay. she did end up having to go to the NICU and I just, you know, we thought, okay, it'll probably be like. Just kind of checking things out, like, a day mm-hmm. or two. Just because she was small. Yeah, she was small. She was having a little trouble breathing, and 
she was just really had low muscle tone. So okay, some of her reflex, like she didn't do well on her FR. Some of her reflexes were really slight. Okay. So we spent some time with her in those days and just learned a little bit more about her. They did they did an MRI, and so they did find that she had some fluid still on her brain and some parts of her brain were not were not formed quite um, in a normal okay. way. And I work with with children with special needs, so none of this was even you know super alarming or scary to me. Sure. I remember the neurologist talking to me and she said. When she found out I did developmental therapy, she was like, you're the perfect mom. You know, this Aww, is, yeah. she said, you know, this is this is not life-threatening. This is, you know, you're going to learn her and she's probably going to need a lot from you. And so there was just different things that we were starting to kind of think about. Like she might need some physical therapy and some different things. But it was so early to tell. And yeah. we just when we looked in her eyes, we could just see that. She was full of love and peace, and we just felt a, an immediate connection with her. And so we got to enjoy a week with, with Winnie. And again, just about the time when she was doing super well, and Sam um, was going to head back to work the next day. She got moved into a crib because she was able to maintain her, her body temperature, and mm-hmm. she was starting to work a little bit on um, trying to do some feedings. Mostly she was just getting fed through a tube in her nose but okay we were away from the hospital at night because that hospital we actually couldn't stay overnight with her okay and she actually crashed in the middle of the night we got a call we ran over and meaning like her heart like just yeah okay her heart crashed um okay so we found out later that she had had a, a defect in her heart a structural defect um so not electrical but structural and it, there's an area of her heart where when you're a newborn, this one flap closes. It's called the ductus. And basically your heart changes when you're born and takes some kids, you know, a few days for that to happen. And for Winnie, it took a, a week for that to happen. Mm-hmm. When that happened, there was an area of her heart that was constrained and blood couldn't flow through it. So it was it was something they could have treated surgically if, if they had known. Uh-huh. They had done scans, and it wasn't visible on the scans even oh. when they looked back on it. So there was just no way they could have known that was going to happen. Yeah, not really. If they had done, like, scans, you know, repeated scans, maybe they would have been able to see it at some point. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so she she crashed. Her heart stopped. Um, they were unable to, to do anything to keep her heart going or do any emergency procedure or surgery. Wow. We, when we got to the hospital... Because we weren't there, uh-huh. there was just a team working on her, and um, we could tell it was bad. We we uh-huh. knew enough about stuff, and yeah, we just kind of sat down and waited because we didn't want to get in the way. And that, whenever I think back on that, it really bothers me. I wish I would have like run over and you know pushed everyone out of the way, like give me my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> but I know that at the time, I just I knew I needed to let. If there was any chance, I mean, to let them, sure. um, them do what they needed to do. And they just, you know, the doctor came and talked to us and just said, I'm sorry, she didn't make it. And we just couldn't believe it. I mean, there was, there was no thought in our mind mm-hmm. that this could happen again. And, and in a completely different way, there was no genetic condition. There was nothing connecting the two of them. You know, here we thought maybe she would have some developmental delays and some stuff that, you know, 
we would work on happily work on but just never imagined being faced with Mm -hmm. with another loss is devastating just completely devastating and we really didn't know what to do from there I mean we, we spent time with her at the hospital but after that it just felt like life just kind of fell apart we didn't know we were able to do a service we were able to kind of hold it together enough to do some things because it felt like we needed to do that for her this was you know she wasn't going to get a wedding she wasn't going to get a birthday you know we wanted to celebrate her and her beauty and who we knew her to be but it was yeah life really really fell apart and there was Mm -hmm. just a lot of darkness that surrounded the the year after she died so I feel like we had a lot of somehow a lot of peace when we processed Clive's death and with Winnie it was just very different very hard and I think we're still you know continue it's been three years now since Winnie died actually three years this week mm-hmm. and I think we're still processing I mean I think we always will be oh yeah um, and there's so many things we'll never understand yeah but I do try to focus on when I can on the things I can celebrate about her and the beauty of who, you know, who she was and her soul and the things that, you know, I can learn from her and Mm -hmm. to know that, you know, such a little, such a little baby can change your life so quickly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's been quite, quite a journey with our little ones. Oh yeah, it really has been. And I'm assuming that, you know, after noise died down, just, you know, from having her memorial service and after you were like okay now we're back in this place again like wanting to be parents and not having a baby here with us think you know for the third Mm -hmm. time thinking that we were gonna have a baby here and uh, again we're not with our babies like what was going through your mind then were you thinking like okay we still want to be parents Mm -hmm. like we're still gonna do this or what yeah happen next like or did you just feel like too drained to even think about that or actually I'd say it was pretty soon we we were able to take a trip get away a few weeks after Winnie died and we went to the Vancouver area okay and we went even while we were there we were already talking about adoption okay so within within weeks and we didn't really tell anyone that because we felt kind of crazy (laughs) and we thought people would think we were really crazy like okay guys like slow down and process and you're you know you just experience a ton of trauma again and don't rush into anything but we we just knew like adoption would be next so were you like okay we're not gonna try biologically anymore like that's it's been too much or have you not written that off or where do you No, we haven't written that off um we just felt like it was what we needed to do next okay sure the next thing so okay so yeah we we knew a little bit about adoption. We had had friends who had adopted, and so we just kind of started down the path of trying to figure out, you know, what kind of adoption to do. And I think about three months later, we started some classes. She passed away in August, and it was November that we started some classes. So, okay. so you have to do adoption, like, classes and a home study. Yeah. So we decided on domestic infant adoption just because we felt like that was what would be best for our family and we knew that having a newborn would be really special to us Mm -hmm. so in the process of our our home study we actually were connected with somebody that we knew that was expecting and 
wanted us to have her baby. And mm-hmm. so we kind of pursued that for a while and mm-hmm. for several months. But then at some point in her pregnancy, she decided that she was going to keep the baby. And so mm-hmm. we had to kind of go through that again. And that was, that was, I mean, it was very different, but it was still hard to feel like, I guess, a little bit unprotected is kind of how I would phrase it, where we thought that somebody mm-hmm. would be thinking about, you know, our hearts and how hurt we were and know that carrying us on in that path would be really, really hard. So yeah, that was a lot to process and then kind of explored some other options. And then we'd landed on something where it was going to be a lot more like just waiting for the call and for a baby to be ready and and not having like a match that would extend for months. So we wanted to do something like that. And then we were reached out to by somebody who was having a baby in six weeks. <laughs> and Whoa. actually her sister reached out to us and we're like, well, we don't want to do this again because this just is putting our hearts on the line. We don't feel like we can do that. But it was like, well, it's only six weeks. So, you know, we can hold off and just at least give it a shot. And we did. And that is our daughter, Corey. Mm-hmm. So we actually mm-hmm. were able to be the mom delivered locally to us. Um, she's kind of from the area. She doesn't live here anymore. but And we were able to be present and hold her after she was born. And we've basically mm-hmm. had her since she was a newborn and really special. And we have a, an open relationship with her mom, meaning that we send pictures and messages. And they haven't seen each other in two years, but um, we're open to that if her mom, if her birth mother does want to do that. And yeah, it's just really, really special and beautiful to raise a child and see her grow and you know, adoption has never felt like a second best thing by any means. Mm-hmm. It's just been a different, a different thing sure. and a, a really beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's been cool, you know, maybe cool is not the right word, but it's been, I think, helpful that I've experienced loss of a baby because I think I understand, obviously it's completely different, but her mother's decision to surrender the baby to us was yeah. so hard and was done, you know, not out of of hate but out of love you know and just choosing choosing us and yeah I think we've been able to connect a little bit on that level of I just know how much her heart must hurt even though she knew that that was the right thing for her to do it didn't it didn't mean it was an easy decision Mm -hmm. for her yeah yeah absolutely yeah wow okay and so how old is Corey now she's two She's two now. Okay. Yeah. So you've had, she's been in your family for two years, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So she's two. Winnie would be three and Clyde would be four. So. Okay. Yeah. All right. I did want to ask too, like, what did that look like for you and Sam together as a couple throughout all your babies? Like, were you, did, I mean, just because you hear, like, people will say a lot of times the loss of a child can drive people apart more than it can bring them together did you guys ever feel that way with any of your losses or how did that affect you two as yeah a couple like I said before we are I mean he's my best friend we're so close but mm-hmm. I do think that just going through a loss going through a trauma just the experience of grief puts so much stress on a relationship and we just spend a lot of time just really intentionally communicating, talking, effort, just this effort of, you know, spending time, yeah, just basically talking through everything. 
which is not what you want to do. You know, what you want to do is numb out and you know, mm-hmm. binge watch a TV show and mm-hmm. have a bottle of wine. And, you know, no one wants to just talk and talk and talk about, about stuff. But we felt like that's kind of, and that's still where we're at. You know, if we go a few days or a week without touching base with one another on a, like an emotional level of really where we're at, we find that we get in, you know, kind of scuffles and there's a lot more tension. Mm. I think something we learned really on in, in the grief was that um, grief made us both very selfish mm. because we felt like we could only take care of our needs and our own energy. We only had energy for ourselves. We only had just patience for for what we wanted and when you're in a marriage or I mean if you were if you were parenting a child um, after you've lost a child you there's times when you feel like you have no energy to give to anyone Mm -hmm. else you only have concern for yourself so recognizing the selfishness of grief helped a lot because I think we were able to just kind of take a step back sometimes and say okay I'm acting this way because I can't care for somebody else besides myself right now. And not that it's an excuse, but it's, it, it helps to understand one another a lot better. Yeah. That was, I think the selfish nature of grief was like the main thing that helped us get through a lot. And then just, yeah, like I said, talking a ton. Mm-hmm. Well, you have, I feel like you have so much perspective and I know you said like, it's not like you're ever just going to be over what, what you've gone mm-hmm. through, like, you're not, not just ever going to be like, okay, and this morning I woke up and mm-hmm. I'm fine. Like, I am not sad about the loss at all. Like, it's probably something you'll grieve forever, mm-hmm. even though, you know, it, the pain might feel a little less mm-hmm. as the years go by, but it's still going to be there. And so what have you learned about grief over the past few years? Like, what, what else besides what you just said yeah. have you learned? Yeah, I think I've learned a lot of for myself, taking time to process, taking time to press into hard feelings rather than ignoring them. For me, that's looked a lot like journaling, trying to do some creative avenues, expressive things um, with art, spending time in nature, just getting outside. Mm -hmm. And really, Mm -hmm. yeah, really trying to press into why I'm feeling a certain way if I'm having days where I'm feeling really angry, there's probably a reason. And the reason is mm-hmm. almost always grief related. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that way for, for most people. Sure. Even yeah. if they've not experienced the loss of a child, usually yeah. there's these triggers that are causing them to have these other emotions. And yeah, I've just spent a lot of time pressing into that. And it's hard. It's hard, especially with a two-year-old. I don't feel like I have a lot of time to think straight. Yeah. <laughs> but I do feel like I learned a lot of, you know, some coping techniques and I've learned to give myself permission to, to watch shows and ignore my pain for a while, but you know, not leave it there. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, there's just such a wide range of grief and of types of grief and of seasons of grief. And I just try to allow myself as long as I'm not doing anything that is hurting, you know, really hurting myself or relationships. Mm -hmm. I try to give myself a lot of permission to feel what I'm feeling and spiritually for me that has definitely been giving myself permission to be angry with God and to feel distance from him and to feel hurt by him and and even abandonment Mm -hmm. and pressing into those feelings and not feeling like you know like it's wrong yeah not feeling like 
well, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be feeling it's wrong to feel these way that way. And I shouldn't yeah. be feeling those things, but just to, to admit like, I'm feeling that way right now. And maybe that's not mm-hmm. the way I always want to feel, but that is how I feel right now. And pressing into how I can get past that, but also get past that in an authentic way, not in a way that's just some cookie cutter, you know, this book that I was reading told me I should do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I'm just going to follow this little thing. I think just processing through it and experiencing it for myself. And there are still some days that I have, you know, a million questions and feel really angry and frustrated. And I try to allow myself to feel that way, but then also to pull back and try to, like I said before, just remember the things that I can be grateful for, even though there's a lot I can be cynical and hardened about. There are still a lot of things that, you know, I'm, I'm more grateful that I had Clive and Winnie than if they had never existed. You know, I got to, yeah. I got to love them and, and I have hope for someday getting to see them again. And yeah. I think for me, that's a, just a huge part of, of healing and just knowing that I have a, a hope personally, I have a hope in heaven. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So how is that now? Like still dealing with grief and raising a child that is obviously your child, but, you know, isn't biologically mm-hmm. your child. How is it being a mom now? Like, do you feel like you're still able to, like, fully be in being a mom, you know? Or do you feel, do you ever feel like part of your heart is still, like, with your other children? I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making yeah, sense. Yeah, but... no, I think that makes sense. Um, Yeah, I think even though I'm only you know, raising one child, I still feel sometimes that flustered pressure of almost that I am, a, I mean, I am a mom of three, but just mm-hmm. that I almost feel like my heart is in, you know, in these different places. And yeah, yeah, it feels hard at times. And I think it looks, obviously it looks very different because my hands are not full, you know, with three babies, but I think my heart, my mind, my emotions are full and and I think my, but my expectation of myself is kind of high because I'm like, I only have one right now, so I shouldn't be feeling so overwhelmed and yeah. I shouldn't have, you know, such hard days, but they, they are hard. And, and I think it, it has been hard. It's gotten easier with time, but I would say, especially when, when Corey was little, it was, it was hard to relate to other moms just because our journey was so different and it can just be easy to let comparison or bitterness creep in and uh-huh. just I've struggled a lot with feeling misunderstood in my journey and just feeling lonely in my journey. Yeah. But I think over time, I, you know, try to, I try to just enjoy motherhood. And like I said, if I have hard days, I, you know, I, that happens to everybody. So just have a lot of grace, mm-hmm. grace for myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Grief is like, it's so hard and you might think you kind of understand it and then maybe you go through a loss, which we all will, like it's inevitable, mm-hmm. like it just happens mm-hmm. in our world. But you go through a loss and it's like what you thought you knew totally changes. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's such a journey and it's something that I feel like just never leaves you. Like it might get easier to deal with with time, but it's never, I mean, it's yeah. never fully like gone. Yeah, definitely. So what, I guess, what advice do you have for people that are going through a loss or even if you're not going through a loss right now, like Mm -hmm. you are going to. So what advice do you give people that are grieving, whether it's specific to moms or just people who are Mm -hmm. grieving? 
I'll say one one thing that was kind of unexpected to me because I haven't really heard people talk about it was just the general fatigue and difficulty thinking that you have after experiencing loss or trauma any traumatic experience there I don't I haven't done a ton of research on it but I just know like your brain is really altered from these experiences and mm-hmm. just the lack of energy and the lack of clarity of mind can really affect you as a person especially if you've maybe been someone who's felt really capable or has a a job that requires a lot of energy whether physical or mental mm-hmm. you kind of feel like you're in a fog for a really long time and yeah. I just remember this one example of and this happened to me several times I would step I would stamp a whole like stack of letters but I would put the stamp in the wrong corner like the opposite corner <laughs> and then I would look at them and think, I don't, I don't know if this is right or wrong. And Sam, like, he'd have to help me. Like, no, this is not right. <laughs> it goes in this corner. <laughs> and it's such a silly thing because that's obviously not anything I've ever struggled with before, knowing what corner <laughs> a stamp goes on. Yeah. But I felt so confused. And I would forget names. I would forget appointments. Um, just so many things that I never struggled with in my adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, so just mm-hmm. expecting life to be different and kind of allowing yourself that permission of like it's okay you don't have to do it all slow down make room for for yourself to rest and scale back on your commitments to things mm-hmm. and like not comparing yourself to others and how they're grieving because there are some people who you know push through and might start like a foundation for their loved one within like a month after um, they've passed and it just kind of like wow, you know, I wish I had energy to do that or I wish I could do that. And yeah, it's okay. You don't have to do it all. Like you have a whole lifetime ahead of you to remember them. You don't have to feel pressure to do it Mm -hmm. all at once and and maybe like burn yourself out in the process. Another Mm -hmm. thing I've thought of is just encouraging people to find a community. So I really connected with a group of, of women online, found someone through a blog, and then I got hooked up with a private Facebook group and there were several of us who had lost children all at the same time. And those girls are like close friends to me now. And we walked through a lot together. And I have not met all of them in person, but I've met some of them in person. They live all over the country. And whether it's online or like a local support group or just even if it's friends who have not experienced the same kind of loss, but who are really empathetic or sympathetic to you just finding some people uh, a community to be real with because you can't do it alone and I think being vulnerable being able to be vulnerable connects us to people it it reveals our humanity and it is really a healthy thing to do and I don't think we're able to get through this kind of stuff alone even if you're an introvert just finding like one other person to be able to connect with and online is awesome because it is a little bit more controlled and you know you can kind of um, do it on your own time and stuff but there's tons of like online Mm -hmm. support groups that are wonderful Mm -hmm. and then I think the other two things I would say would be take time to process whatever way works for you like I said for me journaling being alone writing going to therapy Mm -hmm. Um, there's no shame going to therapy don't wait till it's you know, yeah. so it's too late. It's good to just go. Um, Absolutely. And then the last thing I think 
was so helpful for me in grief was having really gracious assumptions of other people because people hurt you when you're grieving like you will be hurt people will say the wrong things people will yeah they'll just hurt you not me <laughs> and but they will <laughs> yeah yeah and some people do mean to but but like 99% of the time they do not mean to right yeah and it is so easy to become bitter and resentful when somebody says the wrong thing or does something offensive or whatever and I just always try to assume that they don't know better because they, you know, they haven't been told or they haven't been through this or whatever. And I just, I try to take it as an opportunity. If I, if I feel the need to, to like gently correct, like, Hey, it's actually really kind of hurtful to me. If you said, said that, or it might be hurtful to somebody else. If you talk about it this way, or I know people, this hasn't happened to me, but people whose family members like, don't really count their kids as grandchildren or something. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. um, well, they're not really here. We only have one grandson because they're not here. And But just trying to communicate. Like, they don't understand how you feel. And just having gracious assumptions that they're not trying to be hurtful. Let's yeah. just trust their hearts. And that has given me so much freedom in my relationships with other people. And there's people, I mean, I had to have a lot of boundaries and there's people I have to unfollow on Facebook even people I'm close with because maybe it's just too hard to see pictures of of their new baby or you know x y and z but Mm -hmm. just having the ability to say you know I trust their heart and their heart is not out there to get me and out there to hurt me and they don't know like thank god they don't know how it is to feel you know the way I feel and leaves me in a much better spot to yeah. Um, to not be bitter. Right. Yeah. Them, so. Well, so likewise with that, what would you say to people? What What is the right thing to say if you have a friend or a loved one that's grieving? Like what, what advice do you have for right. those people that are on the other side? Yeah. You know, I don't think there's any like clear cut thing because there are certain things that you could do with one person that would be, you know, everyone's so different. But I think a few things that I think are important would be not trying to like come in and fix anything like grief is a process grief is uh it's not like something wrong with you that you're sad and grieving it's actually a really healthy state to be in and um don't try to come in and make someone happy because they probably don't need to just feel happy they probably need to remember and and process and actually face their emotions i think keep showing up listen to them don't try to offer a ton of advice necessarily unless it's asked for if you're pushed away you know just try to keep gently showing up in different ways you know just remembering special important dates put them in your calendar and make sure you text them Mm -hmm. every year or um i think after the first three months it's really hard because a lot of support drops off so maybe waiting and um, checking in more later and Mm-hmm. Um, just saying, like, how are you really doing? I care. I want to. I want to hear if you want to share and giving space, but not, not pressuring. And then helping with just like practical things, like groceries, meals, cleaning. Those were all things that were for me really hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> going to the grocery store was a miserable experience because I just felt so lost. And I might see somebody, and you know, you just never know how people are going to be when they see you. And yeah, so. I think just being practically help, helpful and then just remembering with with people 
I love that, you know, some friends or my sisters will, you know, send me a picture on Winnie's birthday of something they did to remember or just text me, you know, I'm thinking of her today and, you know, she's so beautiful and I miss her so much with you. And that just means so much because to know that my loved one is cared for and remembered and valued and not forgotten, that's that's Mm -hmm. the greatest gift. It really is. Yeah. 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 So just like it's not even about saying the right thing, but just kind of being there past, you know, everybody's there like right away, Mm -hmm. but not everybody's Mm -hmm. there, like you said, after a couple of months or even a couple of years later, like those people that still recognize that it's a loss and it's a sad thing and, you know, still recognize those feelings after time goes by. That's really special. It is. Well, I did want to ask too, did you have any advice? This one is a curveball, but did you have any advice for couples specifically or like to married folks that maybe they haven't gone through a loss, but again, most of us will, and maybe it won't be a child, but we're going to grieve together. And so how do you Mm -hmm. grieve together well and not let it drive you apart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say um, taking time to, to spend in conversation it is so important. And if you have to go to counseling to be able to have someone to help facilitate that, I think it is worth it. Absolutely. Um, And that's something that, that's something that actually family members and other people could help by offering, offering to pay for counseling or therapy. Mm -hmm. Such a wonderful gift, not to pressure it, it, but just to say, don't let the money be a hang up on, you know, because usually people are facing medical bills and other things. And it's just, it is hard to, to feel like you have the money to spend on that. So um, going to counseling as a couple, I think can be really helpful. Taking time to try to do some things that are enjoyable together, things that you enjoy as a couple, because it can't all be about grief. Like you have to find some ways to continue um, forward in life and just bond. So I think whether that's traveling together or if you enjoy movies together or finding a new show that you can watch together, or um, we got like those cook- cooking boxes, like Blue Apron, doing that together. Mm, something yeah. that you can kind of appreciate together. And then we actually were able to go to a retreat together. So I think trying to find something like that. We went to a retreat for grieving parents that uh, an author, Nancy Guthrie, and her husband put on. And that was really helpful because I think there's a lot of support that's specifically for moms there's not a ton of support that's for couples together. And I think that that, that was a really good thing because we just got to meet other people who also had been through mm-hmm. loss and just feel a lot more normal in our grief and feel like we weren't mm-hmm. completely outside of normal civilization. And yeah, I think that those, those things were really important to us connecting. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned it earlier, but you're doing a lot of really, you're taking what you've learned and turning it into a book, which is awesome. Um, you've already been blogging, so writing's not new to you by any means, mm-hmm. but now you're writing a book, which is so exciting. So tell us about your book. Mm-hmm. When is it supposed to yeah. release and everything? I'm hoping it'll release at the end of this year or very early next year. While we're recording this, it should be releasing either at the end of um, 2019 or early 2020. And it is a book it's called Create, Believe, Grieve, Process Your Loss with Intention and Truth. And it's basically focusing on the active work of grief. 
I think I've talked about that several times already, but just taking the time to process, taking the time to work through your emotions, grief. Our story is really woven throughout it, but I, I consider the book to be a little bit more of a guidebook. It has topical chapters. So there's a chapter about grace and having forgiveness for people and grace for yourself. There's a chapter about lament and just, you know, allowing yourself to be sad and kind of processing like all the pain and not ignoring and stifling it. There's a chapter about joy and just kind of seeing the way that your, your loss and the life of your loved one can transform you. So I, it is more about grief than it is like a memoir style, but I share, I share our story in it. And yeah, I hope it'll be a really helpful tool. It's very visual. There's a lot of, there's hymns in it. There's art and quotations mm-hmm. throughout it. And yeah, it's, it's been a really fun, fun project for me, a hard project, but really sure. good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's really cool because like you mentioned, writing has been one of the therapeutic things that you've done, but now it's also, you know, helping other people, which I think is really, really mm-hmm. neat. So, and on your, well, I'll make sure to put links to the blog and everything. And your book might actually be out by the time mm-hmm. this podcast airs. Yeah, so we'll put might. links to that if it's yeah. available. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll put links to your Instagram too, because I know you write on there some. Mm-hmm. And then you guys also have an Etsy shop, right? We do. Yeah. It's not super active, but yeah, we have some different shirts on there. Um, we mostly used it as like an adoption fundraiser two oh, years okay. ago. But yeah, we do have an Etsy shop still. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah, I'll make sure to put links to all that. But awesome. I've kept you like way over time. But oh, it's such okay. a good story, such a sweet story. So I didn't I didn't want to speed through it by any means. Yeah, but thank you. If you could give listeners one main message, what would you want it to be? I think mostly it's it's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to take time to process and you might not understand like why things happen. There's not always a neat and tidy answer, but I think that you can move forward and life can be beautiful even in the pain and sorrow can can really deepen your appreciation for mm-hmm. for life and for joy. I think that's good. Well, I I know I can't wait to read your book and hear more about you. your thoughts on grief because, like I said, and I'll keep saying it, we're all going to deal with it. And so mm-hmm. I think it's good, even if, you know, you're not going through a situation that's causing you to grieve right now, like it's good to be prepared mm-hmm. because it'll come, right. you know. Yeah. So, okay, I want to ask you a couple of fun questions. Since you're an author, you have a, a good appreciation for good books, so... What is the most impactful book that you've read? My favorite book is Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard. Oh, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's an allegorical book similar to like Pilgrim's Progress. And I think it's from the 50s. But it's just it's a beautiful story of like just a journey through through fear and pain and sorrow. And I've read it a few a few times, but it's just yeah. It's hard to even explain, but just a really beautiful story. Pretty mm, okay. A pretty short read, but really, really good. Okay. What about something you've listened to lately? Do you have any recommendations for people? I've been listening to The Good Neighbor, which is a book about Red Rogers. Uh-huh. An audiobook. It's really long. but um, I feel like I've heard of this, though. Yeah. So a lot is coming out on Mr. Rogers right now. Okay. Like a movie. Uh, there was a documentary, and then there's a movie... 
coming out later this fall that Tom Hanks is in. And um, so just so much about his life is kind of being highlighted right now. And I just have a lot of respect. I love his gentleness and his kindness and just directing people towards humanity. And I just feel like there's so much that we can learn through the way that he, he taught and and especially, I think, the way that he was unafraid to be a sensitive and kind man. And I think that there is in our mm-hmm. culture just this tendency to, to think guys have to be a certain way. And yeah, sure. I just have so much respect for him. So anything yeah. Fred Rogers lately. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. Oh, I definitely want to check that yeah. out. That's really cool. Yeah. How about, do you have a brand or product that you're really liking lately? That was a hard one for me to think of. Um, but I have been taking some graphic design classes on creativelive.com, which is basically like, I don't know, a subscription-based or um, you can buy classes like a la carte. And wonderful classes on photography and graphic design, writing. There's so many wonderful classes on there. And they do them live as well. So at any time of day, there's always a class going on. So you can get classes for free if you have like uninterrupted time to just sit and listen to them. But actually really good quality and wonderful stuff. So I've been learning all about Adobe Suite and um, kind of dipping into that. So it's been really fun. Uh, That's very cool. Uh, Well, you're a woman of many, many talents. So, okay, what's the best place for people to find you? Would it be through your blog or your Instagram? Probably um, Instagram would probably be the best. Rachel George writes. And then, yeah, my blog, samandrachelgeorge.com. I'm not on the blog quite as often right now just because – the book is taking up so much time, yeah. but um, yeah, you kind of have a lot going on. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Rachel, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to just share your story with us. It's so so precious, and I know it's probably not easy to go back and visit all the time, but I think it's such a beautiful story, and I can tell that you've learned so much through it, and I think other people will too. So I'm really excited to read read your words in your book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for listening to me, for having me on here. And yeah, I just really appreciate appreciate it. So. Oh, yeah. It's an honor. <laughs> what a sweet, sweet story Rachel and her husband Sam have. If you're like me, you probably found yourself tearing up a bit at times, but I hope you also felt inspired. Rachel's ability to have hope even after such tremendous grief leaves me in awe of her and in awe of what God has done in her life, and it truly gives me hope for the future. Maybe your story is really similar to Rachel's with grieving children, or maybe it's a bit different, but like I said, we all will have grief in our life, and so I hope you are able to learn from her. I'm super thankful that she is so willing to share and to teach others through what she has gone through and just for her vulnerability in this episode. Having someone there to say that it's okay to not be okay, like I said, that's so helpful to hear, and I hope it challenged you in how you process grief and how you might help others in the future. No matter where you're at or what you're going through right now, I think Rachel's words will stick with you and will come back to you when you need them most. I know Rachel and I would both love it if you'd check out her new book, Grieve, Create, Believe, And maybe you should share this show with a friend or someone who you think could need it. 
I also like that Rachel is willing to share about her experiences with grief groups and counseling. Counseling is something that not everybody is comfortable talking about, but I truly believe it's something we all need at some point in our life. So I hope you feel no shame in thinking about counseling. I know it's helped me, I know it's helped Rachel, and I would highly recommend it for anyone listening. Like I said, Rachel and I recorded this back in the fall, and since then, a lot has happened. For one, her book was officially released. Grieve, Create, Believe is now available for purchase, and I included the links for that in the show notes. Also since then, Rachel and Sam have had another baby. Baby Miles was born in February, and he is doing great. He is so cute and has red hair just like Rachel, and I just couldn't be more happy for their family. I was able to follow along with Rachel's fourth pregnancy journey on her Instagram account. And if that's something you're interested in checking out, I highly recommend you go back and look. As you know, she's a very talented writer and her Instagram captions are not to be excluded from that. So make sure you go look at those pictures and see her words and her journey through that. And I also told you that there would be some special announcements coming if you listened all the way through. So one of those is that Rachel is willing to do a giveaway of her book. So the details of that are going to be posted online tomorrow, so make sure you look at my Instagram and her Instagram account or her Facebook accounts to find out how you could possibly win one of her books. But whether or not you enter this competition, I hope you keep her book in mind. Again, what a great gift to send to someone in need or even a purchase for yourself to have down the road. The other special announcement I have is about me and the show, and that is that starting next month, I'm going to be releasing episodes more frequently. So at the end of April, I will be leaving my full-time job just so I can focus more on being a mom and being in my family and also on this project of the podcast that I love so much. It has been a super fun journey the past two years and I want to do more. So I'm leaving my full-time job and going to focus a little more on this. I'm not entirely sure what that looks like yet, but there will be changes to come. So I just appreciate your patience and bearing with me through the turbulence of change. But I'm really excited to be releasing episodes more frequently and shorter episodes, which some of you might be excited about. So that's why it's important to make sure you subscribe to the show so that you get notified whenever a new show is available. And like I said, when you're over there, if you would leave a rating and a review, that would really, really help me out. Thank you so much for sticking through to the end of this. I know this was a long one, so I appreciate you listening all the way through. Keep an eye out for more announcements to come and changes along the way that I'm really excited about sharing with you all. Go check out Rachel's social media accounts, read her words, look at the pictures of her sweet babies. Think about how you can care for those grieving or care for yourself while you're walking through grief and keep seeking to get enlightened. Peace out.